everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Infinite Worlds podcast. I'm your host, Winston Ward, publisher of Infinite Worlds magazine. As always, I'm joined by my co-host, Nick the Tooth. All right, Winston, here we are. We are in the yes. midst of one of my favorite episodes that we've done so far, and this is a top 10 sci-fi villains Yes. Um, what's better than villains, man? Yes. <laughs> <That's what Yeah>. the- <laughs> In the previous episode, we went through our top 10 through six. Each of us went through our top 10 through six. So in this episode, we're going to try to cover number five through number one, each of our number five through number one. Hopefully we've got the episodes balanced so they're around the same length. Let's try to do that. Real quick, has anything been going on since we last recorded? No, not too much. I'm reading a really, really good book. It's called Tomorrow, 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 and I'm digging that. Okay. Um, I've also started another book that's kind of – but I'm really liking this book too. This book uh, that I'm in the midst of right now is called The Midnight Library, and it's kind of sci-fi, kind of not a lot of fantasy I don't know, man. Anything that's kind of fantasy in my mind, I'm always like, yeah, this is uh, this is sci-fi. But it's a good one, man. I really recommend that book. Are you watching anything? I'm not. Right now, I'm not really watching. I've gone through a thing since I came back from Europe where I haven't really gotten into um, any series right now. I'm looking for something. you have any recommendations? Well, yeah, actually, I do. Okay, first, my book. As always, I'm reading a Philip K. Dick book. I always do. I'm trying to get through all of them. <laughs> right now, I'm reading The Simulacra by Philip K. Dick, which is really it was really funny uh, to me because I started it and got a little ways into it and realized, man, this seems so familiar. Have I read this before? And I was like, there's no way I've read this before. I've made a list. I made a checklist. And then I realized that I actually read a novella that he had written that this book was – this book this novel was expanded from the novella that I had already read. Uh, the book is called The Simulacra. The novella was called The Novelty Act, which I had already read. And I was like, oh, that explains it. The book's way different. The book completely goes in a bunch of different directions and has whole different like parallel plots and all this stuff. And I'm about halfway through that right now. And so that's my book that I'm reading. As far as shows go, I actually do have a pretty good recommendation. I'm watching a TV show called Alice in Borderland, which is a Japanese- Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I saw a couple episodes of that. It's awesome, Yeah, it's a Japanese, if you guys aren't familiar, this is a Japanese show produced by Netflix. And in a lot of ways, it's similar to Squid Game or Battle Royale. It's got a little bit of that going on, but it's got a lot more of a heavy sci-fi heavy element to it. So, you know, it's, you know, definitely more pertinent to my interest. It also precedes Squid Game. It also came out before Squid Game did. And is also based on a manga series- so, but it's like, I've watched the first season and the first couple episodes of the second season and it's not perfect. And it's definitely got some heavy melodrama, typical of some Japanese stuff. It is a pretty darn cool show and very interesting. And it kind of keeps you on the edge of your seat and is also hyper violent. So uh, yeah, I'd recommend that. I think I saw the first episode and really liked it and then just forgot about it. So I'm going to have to go back and revisit that. Yeah. If you're looking for a show, the first couple of episodes of the second season dragged to me a little bit, but it's picked back up now. But the first season is like real edge of your seat stuff and some real shocking and unexpected stuff too. So that's what I'm watching right now. So I guess that catches us up on media. So I guess we can go ahead and jump into our top five. What do you think? Let's do it. For number five, I'm going to go back to another cult favorite. Um, this was a uh, an incredible movie that came out in 1998. Okay, it is Dark City. Oh, great, great, Dude, great choice. Right? <laughs> Kiefer Sutherland, Jennifer Conley, William Hurt. 
This movie was unbelievable. It's just one of the most dark, weird, twisted movies. I don't know how they got it made, but it was so freaking good. And it didn't, it was really kind of another bomb, you know, kind of a cultish right. bomb. It did 27 million to make, 27 million to, uh, they took in. But this was a movie where the character keep waking up like in like f- suffering from amnesia in this weird noir type of a dark world and has to figure out what in the world is happening mm-hmm. and is being like pursued by this group called the strangers. Yeah. And they're like these really weird kind of sci-fi alien characters, but I, I loved how, and so they're my, my pick for number five. It's a great choice. It's a great choice. Honestly, even though the movie is not that popular, they're a terrific villain. Yeah. What I love about it is how this movie came out the year before the Matrix. It has so many of the same properties. Yeah. Not a machine controlling humans. They're aliens mm-hmm. controlling humans. So it's different in that way. But the result is the same. Yeah. It's cool, man. It's I definitely recommend it. And uh, I'd say it's, it's right in line with uh, Blade Runner in the sense that it's just employing this like noir like mystery noir and using that kind of a, of a backdrop. Sure. And same with um, same with uh, the Matrix too. And so they do share a lot. And so a lot of people were like, is the Matrix that much of a ripoff of Dark City? But I don't think so. They were probably both in, in production at the same time. Yeah, and the script for the Matrix was being developed like ten years before the movie was released. Exactly. So, so exactly. I, you know, I've heard that before, and I think we've talked about it during the Matrix episode of the show. So, you know, mm. we're going to keep calling it back and calling it back, y'all. <laughs> before we move on, I just want to say another great thing about those villains is the way they're designed. Besides, I mean, their appearance—they're all wearing these big black coats and these big black broad rimmed hats, and they've got these really pale, ghostly faces, and they all have names like. Mr. Hand and Mr. Book and Mr. Hat. And it's just adds to the overall inhuman creepiness of the characters too. So I think besides just being a cool idea that precedes a way more famous version of a character, besides that, they are also rendered really cool. Mm -hmm. Okay. Let's hear yours, man. My number five is one of the most obscure ones on my list. And This is mostly because I'm a huge fan of this writer, but also because I think the villain is just awesome. My number five pick is Palmer Eldritch from The Three Stigmata of Palmer Eldritch by Philip K. Dick. Ah. This is a pretty obscure book. There's never been an adaptation of this, which it would be really difficult to make an adaptation of this. I think if you've read it, you know what I'm talking about. But I'll go ahead and just give you a brief rundown of what it is. Okay, so the story of The Three Stigmata of Palmer Eldritch revolves around a future Earth that's overheated due to climate change. And so dramatically overheated that if you're out in the midday, you'll die. If you're out in the sun in the midday, it'll kill you. People are forced to live indoors most of the time and also are being drafted by a future United Nations that controls the whole world and sent to Mars to live on colonies. But life on Mars is horrible. You can't go outside there either because it's freezing cold and you're basically doing the same thing except like the opposite. You're trapped inside and you're forced to do mining and live indoors. Everybody basically has to live indoors in these situations, but they keep their sanity by ingesting a drug called CAN-D. And CAN-D makes it possible to share hallucinations with people nearby. The company that sends people to Mars also secretly sells this drug candy and markets these toys that are like accessories in your shared reality. So if you buy the perky pat 
sports car in your shared hallucination. You guys can cruise around in your sports car. So that's the setup. And what happens is this merchant explorer who's left the solar system returns from a nearby solar system. His name is Palmer Eldritch. And he returns. He's marketing a new drug that is an improvement on candy. It's called Chew Z. And instead of having a shared reality that you share with the people nearby you, you're allowed to create an entirely immersive hallucinatory world that you control all by yourself and that you can exist in and control all the elements of. But it's pretty soon discovered by one of the characters in the story that if you ingest Chew Z, if the drug even does exist, but if you ingest this drug, you're no longer in control of even your reality. It basically gives Palmer Eldritch, who may or may not be an alien being from the nearby solar system, control over your reality forever. And he just uses you as a plaything in his reality because he's just the, either the alien or Palmer Eldritch is not exactly clear which one is going on is just a sadist and just controls you and toys with you and makes you think that you've returned to your normal reality. But after you've fallen into a lull of thinking you're back to your normal reality, he suddenly appears and he appears and you know that you're in his controlled reality still because of the three stigmata. And the three stigmata is that Palmer Eldritch has returned with a robotic right hand, with artificial eyes, and with gleaming metal teeth. And you'll think that you're returned to your own reality, and all of a sudden you'll turn around and somebody that you were just talking to now has a rose of metal teeth. And you realize that it's not your reality, that it's Palmer Eldritch creating a false reality for you. And then all of a sudden everything breaks apart and you're floating in this completely surrealist world of his creation. Throughout the story, you never actually learn if Palmer Eldritch is human or not. You never learn if the main character is trapped in the reality or has somehow freed himself. To me, this villain rules because of how similar the story is to our current reality. Like the idea of the earth overheating and climate change causing these problems is so on the doorstep. The idea that we maintain our sanity by entering shared hallucinogenic worlds, we call that the metaverse right now. <laughs> oh my God. Dude, you know, I just was listening to uh, a podcast. It was uh, uh, Rushkoff was on there and he was talking about how if they took a group of children who were like seven, eight years old and they get, they took them to an aquarium and they were, they saw whales and all this shit and dolphins and all this. And then they took other kids and they put them in like a VR with dolphins and they were swimming with dolphins. The kids like a year later thought that they actually swam with dolphins and, and it was indistinguishable between the two groups of which one felt was real. The mind could not tell. And see, that's what blows my mind. This story was written in the 1960s, you know, and Philip K. Dick somehow, not just this book, throughout his whole career, was able to see these realities manifesting, you know, and being able to see that if you start playing with people's minds in this way, they're not going to be able to tell the difference between reality and unreality. And it's true. We now know that it's a, not just a guess, it's a fact. Like you say, these studies and just how people prefer to live in these false realities, prefer their online persona, prefer the metaverse, you know, to their real life. Well, I tell you, it's, it's, I think VR, I, I love VR. I think it's gotten off to like a, a, it got a lot of hype. And then now it's kind of like, yeah, it's not that big. People, you don't really talk about it, but these companies are still spending billions to, oh, yeah. to develop it because Apple's about to come out with a headset yeah, this it year. It doesn't surprise me. I mean, a hundred years from now, if we're all stuck inside because the earth is too hot and people, <laughs> exactly. are, li people are living on 
miserable <laughs> colonies on Mars and we're all just plugging into our headsets and playing Farmville, nobody's going to be surprised. Nobody. Nobody will be surprised. Exactly. All right. All right. So my number four is a novel. It is one of, to me, one of the coolest novels I've ever read. Okay. It's less plot driven and more atmospheric. It was written in 2014. Okay. By Jeff Vandermeer, Annihilation. I love it. Annihilation. Yeah. I've even recommended this book to some some people who, uh, a girl that I know, she read, uh, she is not into sci-fi. It's like, I don't like sci-fi, blah, blah, blah. Just try this book. She read it and she was like, oh my gosh. Her and her husband came back. They were like, we don't even like sci-fi in that book. It's a, I think it's a trilogy and she read all of them. This book is so... It's very hard to describe why it's so mesmerizing. Absolutely. And I think that's why you should read it is is because he does some Vandermeer does something with the atmosphere that is really, you know, Alex Garland did an adaptation of the movie and I thought it was cool. I thought it was a companion yeah, it's good. companion piece. It wasn't the same. For sure. It was not the book. Absolutely you know? not. Who would you describe as the villain? Well, in the in the book, you know, they talk about a, an actual villain towards the end called mm-hmm. the Crawler. But I, for me, it's more Area X. Area X. I couldn't agree more. Whatever the force is, because they never define it in the whole trilogy. No. You, never, you actually never know what the hell it is. I've read the whole trilogy. And you never really exactly know what Area X is exactly. Yeah, it's just this place in the Deep South, you know, where I've lived there. And so where uh, it's in on the panhandle where he lives, he lives, I think, in Tallahassee, and he used that as a backdrop. And it's an incredible backdrop. That environment is so wild. That's where I got staff. <laughs> I almost lost my foot in Area X. But there is some type of an event. Everything is ve- – the whole book is very ambiguous. Very ambiguous. The whole book is very ambiguous. That's the selling point of it. I know it makes it sound. I know. Like people, like no. when you hear that, you're like, oh, I don't want to read a super ambiguous book. But honestly, guys, it really is the selling point of this book. Like how weird, surreal, and ambiguous everything that happens in the book is what makes the book so great to read. It's hard to fathom that, but it's so true. Yeah. And so there's this area in the deep south, in the swamps, where there's, it's called Area X, and they keep trying to figure out what it is. So they send expedition after expedition, and people disappear, get suicides, cancers, all kind of shit. And uh, I think the, this book starts with the 12th expedition inside. And in the movie, just think of the movie as another expedition. It is not this group of people. So it's kind of cool, again, a companion piece to the book. But I definitely recommend it. You've read it. It's he. It's a masterpiece, these right. three books. So. I had the great privilege of interviewing Jeff Vandermeer for an issue of the magazine. Wow. And, you know, he thinks how you would think somebody who wrote this thinks. He's a really unique individual. I respect him a lot because his social media is just – the natural world. That's what interests him in real life is like showing trail cams of raccoons and possums and, you know, alligators and stuff. Cause he lives out there. He lives in Tallahassee, which, or I think, I actually think he lives in Gainesville, if I'm not mistaken now, but in that area. Oh, he moved. Yeah. I think it, yeah. it's, a, but it's still the same latitude, you know, and in Florida. So it's the same environment. Oh, yeah. But yeah, the Area X transforms things like organic, not just organic things, just things like, some sort of alien, or you don't even know if it's actually alien. 
It could be interdimensional. It could be some natural progression of life on Earth. You don't exactly know, but it transforms them and creates all of these weird adaptations and weird evolutions of things. Truly, it is a great choice for a villain because it is incomprehensible, undefinable, all-powerful. Yeah, very, very good. Very good. So what's your next one? My next one, I think, is another one that we've talked about on the show before I I subjected you to this one. My number four pick is Godzilla. (laughs) I'm laughing because I know how much of a Godzilla fanatic you are. Made my top five. Okay, so look, Godzilla has appeared as a hero and an anti-hero in lots of films throughout the franchise. But Godzilla is at its best when Godzilla is a villain which happens in the first 1954 Godzilla directed by Ishiro Honda. And I think mastered, in my opinion, mastered in Shin Godzilla from 2015. So Godzilla is the result of human folly, of scientific human folly. People are testing nuclear weapons in the Pacific. And depending on the origin story you go with, it either awakens an ancient powerful beast or irradiates an already existing organism and transforms it into Godzilla. But Godzilla is this giant, indestructible monster created by nuclear radiation that is intent on destroying human civilization. And it comes onto land, uses its atomic breath, and it's just immense indestructibility to just wreak havoc on mankind. And of course, we talked about this in the Godzilla episode, that it's a metaphor for nuclear destruction, for nuclear war. There's the great Oppenheimer quote based on a quote from, I think, I'm not exactly sure where the quote is originally from, the Bhagavad Gita, I think, but I am become death destroyer of worlds. Yeah, Oppenheimer said that when he discovered the power of the nuclear weapon. And Godzilla is death destroyer of worlds. You know, he is that. And of course, like I say, there are different versions of Godzilla. There's the Godzilla cartoon where Godzilla's like best friends with a small group of researchers, and there's Godzilla that comes and protects Tokyo from even stranger monsters. That stuff's fun, I guess. But for me, Godzilla is the bad guy. Godzilla is the monster that's trying to destroy Tokyo. Not just Tokyo, anywhere that Godzilla shows up, all it wants to do is just fuck stuff up. And that's why I picked Godzilla, is because that version of Godzilla is a great, great villain. The beginning of Kaiju, the beginning of the concept of the nuclear power parallel, Godzilla is my number four choice for all those reasons. So dope. So dope. So dope. All right. Well, for my number three, Winston, I am, once again, I I, I realize that I'm kind of predictable, right? In the sense (laughs) that it is very clear that my favorite franchise in all of sci-fi is Dune. And I'm going to go back to Dune, but this is for, again, one of the prequels, and it's called The Butlerian Jihad, and it's a book. Oh, great. Yeah. Great story. Yeah. The Dune Butlerian Jihad is, again, um, written by Brian Herbert, who is Frank Herbert's son, and with Kevin Anderson. And this one goes back 10,000 years before Dune. And so the premise of Dune, when we pick up with, uh, with the original book... Dune, their computers, thinking machines are outlawed, right? Because humanity had gone through a point where artificial intelligence just and robots had oppressed 
and really decimated humanity, almost brought it to the brink of, did bring it to the brink of extinction. And that's what this story is about. This story is about, it's called the, in the book Dune, we hear about the Butlerian Jihad. But in this book, 10,000 years earlier, we meet Serena Butler and her, how she rises, helps bring this rebellion against the thinking machine, the oppressors. And so it's really cool. I'm not going to go too much into the story, but there are like these robot Cymex, they're called, and they have like canisters where they used to be human and their brains are in there. And so it's really cool. It's really sci-fi. It's crazy. And but one of the uh, one of the robots who is overseeing like a prison camp, uh, a concentration camp of humans. Mm-hmm. His name is Erasmus, mm-hmm. and this dude is so. F- fucking <laughs> evil man the shit that he does in keeping humans in cages and taking their babies and torturing them and it goes through it you are like oh my god i hate this thing but you're hating something that really doesn't care what you think and right. really doesn't like a complete sociopath you know where uh, but that's what a robot can be and I, right. I think that's what's so kind of terrifying about and cool but terrifying about being on the ver- we're now on the verge of you know fooling the turing test with this chat gpt and mind you it's only starting you know yeah, every iteration. we're right at the beginning of this and you know Okay, so look, even though the Butlerian Jihad, the novel, didn't come out until I think 2001 or 2002, the concept of the Butlerian Jihad existed when Frank Herbert wrote the original novel back in 1965. So it predates The Matrix. It predates Skynet. It predates all of these other stories in which the machine – controls people. We keep going back to Dune and that was why it was our first one. And that's why it's such an important piece of work is because that was just honestly like a little, it's mentioned in Dune. The concept is just mentioned, but in order for him to mention that concept, he had to have the idea in his head. So the idea that this universe existed post that means that he knew. Yeah, but he knew Winston because he was so into taking psychedelic mushrooms that he was able to traverse time <laughs> and space. <laughs> yeah. Right, of course. He saw where we were going to end up. And so he's like, all right, I'm going to write a book about this, an allegory. <laughs> well, it's a really good choice and it's going to lead into some other stuff coming up pretty soon on my list. Okay. What do you got for number three? Okay. My number three, this is not the lead in, but I think in a way it is because it's definitely going to lead in from stuff we talked about earlier. My number three is from George Orwell's 1984, which is a real hot topic these days. And we also did an episode on this, but The Party from Mm. George Orwell's 1984. I consider the party to be the actual main antagonist of the book. A lot of people, when they reference the book, they talk about Big Brother but Big Brother is just a figurehead. Big Brother very likely doesn't actually exist. You know, it's just a picture they put up on the wall. Because Big Brother's never seen speaking. Or if Big Brother is seen speaking, they talk about how mechanical it seems and how artificial it seems. So you never see Big Brother in real life, only on the TV, you know? No, oh, the posters. And in the, post- the posters. And in the posters. So Big Brother is just propaganda for the party. Okay, so real quick background on it. If you haven't listened to the episode, go listen to the episode if you haven't. So the party is the main controlling power of Oceania, which is one of the three nation states of the world now that are constantly at war with each other. And it controls the population through the cult of personality with Big Brother 
and an unceasing campaign of propaganda and a never-ending campaign of warfare with the other neighboring states that it uses to distract people. What makes the party really scary is that it's not one villain. It's all of the members of the party all collectively acting as villains. Again, we talked about Nazism before, and you know the party is an allegory for Nazism or for Stalinist communism in Russia in that what's best for the party is best for the world. Therefore, whatever actions I take are justified. And that includes gassing Jews to death. That includes killing soldiers that are retreating from the battlefield because they have no weapons. That includes starving people. That includes, you know, torture. People think, oh, Nazism and Stalinist Russia are the two examples of this in the world. But bullshit, like America didn't eradicate every native person living in America. America doesn't have the Patriot Act where they justify spying on all of their citizens because it's national security. It's what's best for the U.S. And it continues. It's not just the U.S. either. Clearly, it's China. You know, every nation state that gets powerful enough to enforce these kinds of ideas. But you know, it was wild, man. You talk about like a cult of personality that was so close to as close as I've ever seen to uh, 1984 and Big Brother is when I was in Chechnya and we were driving around everywhere you would go, you would see these, I've never seen it before, massive billboards of Putin. Of course, Vladimir Putin's Russia. I mean, massive. Yeah, dude. State-controlled media, complete disinformation campaign. But it was a big poster of just him looking right at you. And the reason, you know, they had, uh, Chechnya had been at war with Russia and had, you know, thrown, waved the white flag and fucking surrendered and assigned a ceasefire. But there were checkpoints all throughout Chechnya and these massive billboards to let the Chechens know, don't even think about it again, because everywhere you go, I'm watching. And it was eerie. It was, I've never seen shit like that, man. It's terrifying. It's straight yeah. up terrifying. There's, there, there's no other way to describe it. You know, it's, it's, that's horrifying. Yeah. So it was, it was heavy. It was, it's good. It's a good one because you're right. When you read that book, I remember reading that book and just that Orwell is so good at just bringing that to your forefront, the big brothers watching in these posters everywhere, man. Oh, so freaking good. Really good. All right. My number two is, uh, I, I would have to say, as far as um, sci-fi movies, definitely, I, I consider it a masterpiece. All right. And it's a very, very recent movie, okay. um, so to speak. It is Ex Machina. Oh, okay. Okay, by, by Alex Garland. I think it's his directorial debut in 2014. And this movie, I, I what I love about mo- movies like this is I love a very, very small movie. Right. Where, yeah, the, you know what I mean? The whole take, thing takes place in just that little compound there. The little house, right? The little They're all in the little house. There's like four characters. Oscar Isaac is so freaking good, yeah, right? absolutely. Oh, my gosh. And so the whole thing is revolves around a Turing test. Right. Right? So they bring in the character. Uh, Caleb to go ahead and um, test whether or not Ava is real or, or, or if he can. We know she's a robot, right? 
And so it's right. not as if she's it's revealed. It's revealed right away. Right away, you see that she is a robot. But that's what's kind of cool about it. Is then can she grow to you know almost seduce him? Not just sex, not sexually, but can she seduce him with her humanity right. into her going? Wait a minute, you he she is she is conscious. You know, she is right. conscious and dude, she is unfricking believable. And what's cool about this, this movie is that it's so menacing. The character, the, the, the programmer, Nathan, Nathan Bateman is the character's name. I just looked it up. I didn't yeah. just know offhand. Yeah, no, Nathan, who programmed her, he's freaking evil too, man. For me, the main villain in this is Nathan. Yeah. But the movie's got a couple of really great villains. So what I love about this movie is that both make great villains and their villainy is so understated. You don't really look at the, anybody in this movie as being really very villainous until the movie's kind of like halfway through. And you don't look at Ava's character as being a villainous until very the end, the very end. Yes. <laughs> Honestly, the end of this movie is one of the most like jaw dropping endings of a movie ever. Yes. That's why I, instead of going with Oscar Isaac's character, I went with Ava because of the ending, the very end. I was like, she did not. She did not have to do that. And she did it anyways. Yeah. So <laughs> you see, so here's the thing is you spend the whole movie seeing Nathan as the antagonist, like yeah. the whole movie until the very end. And you realize what really happened. And once you see that, you're like, oh, my God. And for me, Oscar Isaac's character, the programmer, right? He was he was an incredible villain, but he was a little too like, okay, that's predictable. Yeah. She came out of left field, man, because she seduces us. Right. The whole audience, the entire audience. I was seduced. I was I like, I love her. You know, it's such an excellent point, man. Honestly, this is a really good pick because it is. It really brings up a plot point of this movie that is so understated and so subtle. And it really does. Honestly, it's a great choice, man. It's a great choice. Yeah. What I like about it most is that it's a whole new approach to looking at artificial intelligence as the bad guy. Because mm -hmm. in all the previous renditions of artificial intelligence as the bad guy, they're very flagrantly the bad guy. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? When you look at how 9000 and Skynet and everything, there's never a question as to their intent. They're twisted. They're evil. They're the yeah. bad guys. You see it pretty plainly and you could sympathize with them. You do sympathize with Hal and in a way you sympathize with these other characters too, but there's no question as to their intent. They're not trying to hide that from you or fool you, but the way this character Ava fools you is so so surprising and such good screenwriting. And you feel so sorry for her and you feel you're so sympathetic. You're like, she's not even, she's not the villain. She's the victim. And then you're like, right. what? So yeah, yeah, that's why she's at the top, top of my list. So it's a great choice, man. It's a great choice. Yeah. So what's your number two, man? Cause we're getting juicy here. Yeah, we, yeah, we definitely get juicy. Okay. So my number two is, I, it's another character that we've talked about at length before in the podcast, and I think I think it's a pretty easy to see why it made my list. My number two is The Thing from Who Goes There slash The Thing from Another World slash The Thing. Mm. And, you know, we've talked about this character at length. 
And I don't, did we do a The Thing episode? We did. We did a Thing episode. Yeah. And so we we talked about this character at great length before. So let me go ahead and just recap that real quick. It was introduced in John W. Campbell's novella, Who Goes There, way, way back in 1938, way ahead of its time. He published it under the pen name Don A. Stewart. Again, we talk about all this in the podcast. It was a re- revisited, I think, poorly in The Thing from Another World, 1951. Even though that movie's not bad, it's just I don't think it does the character justice. And then once again revisited in John Carpenter's The Thing in 1982. And then again in The Thing, the prequel that we also discussed on The Thing as well. But let me describe The Thing itself. The Thing is an alien shapeshifter from another world that spent eons trapped in its ship frozen under the Antarctic ice. And the being is capable of mimicking not just the appearance of anything, any organic thing it encounters, but also the personality and mannerisms of all the things it encounters. And in the original incarnation in Who Goes There, the thing is also telepathic and in that it can both read people's minds and influence the thought of others. Mm. So what I like about this character as a villain is how extraordinarily dangerous it is. If it were to infiltrate a large population, it would immediately mean the end of that population because there would be no way to stop it because it could change your mind. It could read your thoughts. It could imitate you. It could replace you. And, you know, there's all the different, like the invasion of the body snatchers and all of these different renditions of this idea that exist in science fiction. But the thing is the original who goes there came out all the way back in 1938. This idea is so ahead of its time and so still in play in terms of science fiction, aliens and science fiction. And, you know, there's all these different sort of riffs on it. Lovecraftian riffs. There's, like I said, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, the Pod People. There's the Tommy Knockers by Stephen King and lots of different ones. But the thing still really remains the supreme character of this type. And besides all of these things I'm saying that make it a really good character, what really kills it is the body horror element that was brought out in John Carpenter's The Thing in 1982. Because on top of everything else, it added this like extreme grotesqueness to it, like the way it tore dogs to pieces when it sprang from them and like turns a body cavity into a set of jaws and all sorts of th- yeah. like, you know, different things like that throughout that movie. And because of that, I think the thing belongs on any top 10 list and it made it all the way after a lot of shuffling around, it made it to number two on my list. I think it's a shoe in personally. Very good one. Very good one. All right. So now we're going to my number one drum roll, please. <laughs> okay. So my number one is, and I've talked about this before on the podcast about how I got this tattooed on my sleeve. It is from the, are you ready? I'm trying to build the suspense as much as I can. This is from the 1981 film, Heavy Metal. Oh my God. (laughs) I knew this, obviously. (laughs) Heavy Metal is what, you know, cemented in my adolescent brain that sci-fi is the greatest of all genres this movie, this anthology series, animated, is it is funny. It showed me that sci-fi can be funny. It can be sexy. It can be freaking brutal. It can have elements of horror with zombies. It can be everything. And once I saw all of that, 
it could, I was like, oh my God. And, and one of my favorite little vignettes in there is about a teenage kid who's a geeky little teenage kid who I still am, right? <laughs> and how he finds, he finds in his backyard, he finds this little green orb. And he does like a science experiment in the middle of a uh, lightning storm and doing an experiment on this little alien orb transfers his consciousness into like this Conan type hero where he goes to this world and becomes like a hero. It's so funny and cool. But this little green orb is what links all of these stories together. And it is a, yes. yeah, it's called the Lochnar and it, the Lochnar. Yeah. <laughs> and what, what an awesome choice for number one, man. I like seriously. Right? Exactly. And so the Lochnar is really the, the, the genesis in this story. It's the genesis of all evil across all right. civilizations. That is, right? you know, it's so like, how are you going to beat a villain that is literally just pure evil? Right. It's defined as evil. What a great choice. And you know, what's really funny is I almost went, this is how badly I missed this character is I almost on my list, I put Zorg from the fifth element, but the real villain in the fifth element is not Zorg. That's right. Zorg serves the ultimate evil, which doesn't even have a name in the movie, but it is the Lochnar. It is because the fifth element is based it's very heavily on heavy metal. <laughs> and I would have been so remiss to have named the evil from the fifth element without absolutely instead absolutely. naming the Lochnar. What a pure choice. And also it's great. It's a great choice because, you know, obviously infinite worlds as a magazine and as a entity takes so much from heavy metal. I don't love everything about heavy metal. And obviously heavy metal has gone through some like ups and downs in terms of the quality of their magazine and their publication and you know, how they deal with their fans and yada, yada, yada. But we infinite worlds owe so much to heavy metal. And That's obviously right. the heavy metal in its prime back in the eighties where, yeah, where it was absolutely awesome. Yeah. And you know, and we did a heavy metal episode as well, obviously. And it truly is, obviously, for myself, you know, you're a little older than I am, not a ton older or anything, but you're a little older than I am. So you got to see that when it came out or around the time. You told me you went to the theaters. Yeah, you I went did. in the theaters. I saw it in the theaters. Yeah. I didn't get to see it until a little bit later on, but I remember seeing it for the first time and just my eyes just bugging out of my head the whole time, <laughs> you know, and I think for most people around our age group, or even younger people who have never seen it. When you see it, that's just the way it is. You look at it and you're just like, oh, my God, dude, this is so fun. Badass. It's so fun and, fun. and badass. And Lockmar yeah. yeah. is such a great idea. Instead of writing one villain, they're just like, let me just encapsulate evil into a sphere that causes evil to manifest everywhere. So great choice. Very cool. Very cool. Awesome number one choice. So, I mean, got to hand it to you on that one, man. <laughs> Okay, so my number one, I don't think is going to quite live up to that, but I wouldn't change it. Even though I've heard all the choices, I still would leave mine where it is. And it's definitely a sleeper. So my choice is Am, the supercomputer from I Have No Mouth and I Must Scream. Okay, yeah. this is another story that's never been adapted to any, like, 
feature film or anything. So a lot, some people won't be as familiar with this one, but I'd love to do an episode on, I have no mouth and must, I must scream at some point and Harlan Ellison, Harlan Ellison. Yeah. So am was originally called allied master computer. And it was later after it started changing, became adaptive manipulator, then aggressive menace. And then finally, once it achieved self-awareness, it changed its own name to am as in, I think, therefore I am. And mm. the story, I, I have no mouth and I must scream, takes place in the distant future, a hundred plus years after the apocalypse that destroys almost all of humanity. And the only thing left on earth is Am, the allied master computer, which has become self-aware and self-capable, meaning that it can build, it has you know robotic parts that can build and expand itself. It has endless supply of energy, but it's now stuck on an unpopulated earth and with self-awareness. And because of this, despises humanity. <laughs> and because of this hatred that basically encompasses its whole being, it keeps five human beings alive in this expansive underground cavern. And because it's so powerful now, it's able to manipulate their bodies. It keeps them alive indefinitely. It can change their physical form. It can project hallucinations. And all it does with all of its spare time and all of its massive computing power and just general power is torture these human beings. There's nothing to its existence but the endless, ceaseless torture of the last remaining human beings on Earth. And to me... Okay, so real quick, just a real quick history lesson. Harlan Ellison's I Have No Mouth and I Must Scream was first published back in 1967 in uh, the magazine If Worlds of Science Fiction. It was in the March 1967 issue. So it goes all the way back to around the time that Dune came out. It's really another old school idea as well. So when we talk about Gynet and the Matrix, this in a lot of ways, it is like the precursor for the Matrix, but it existed Decades and decades before the Matrix story existed. Yeah, no, it's a really good one. And the short story is amazing. It's really cool, man. I liked it. If you haven't read the short story, I think it's really important to read. It's a novella, so it's a little longer than most short stories. But it's a really fascinating and fun read, too. And scary as shit. It is so scary. It's so scary, in fact, that the Infinite Horrors podcast did an episode on it for a horror story instead of thinking of it as a science fiction story. So that wraps up our top 10 list, guys. That was super cool. And I think you're right. I think we have to, uh, we got to do a few more like top. I would love to do like a top five, like cult movie, you know, sci-fi cult movie and see how. Yeah, let's put it on the list. Let's see how deep we can go. You know, how deep can we go? Yeah. How cultish can we get? Which I think between us, I think we'd be able to dig pretty deep. Mm -hmm. Okay, guys, again, thank you so much for listening in on this. You know, I know this was a lot to get through a lot of information, maybe a bit of an information overload, but we had a ton of fun doing it, right? It was amazing. This was really, really fun. Yeah. And, you know, like I said, let us know what you thought. We'd love to hear some feedback on this and see if you guys like this format, would like us to repeat this format. We're itching to repeat it, but... Again, we just want to make the listeners happy, really. So, you know, just let us know. And again, thanks so much. Nick, it's been a blast, dude. I can't wait to do it again, man. Absolutely. Check us on uh, our Instagram pages and hit us with any feedback on anything you want us to cover. We'd love to do it. All right. Be easy, y'all. Guys, if you're enjoying the Infinite Worlds podcast, you could definitely check out more Infinite Worlds related stuff by visiting our website, infiniteworldsmagazine.com. 
There you can subscribe to Infinite Worlds magazine. It's a full-color, ad-free science fiction magazine featuring stories, comics, and illustrations from creators all over the world. You can also sign up to our mailing list. You can follow us on Instagram at Infinite Worlds Magazine or on Twitter at IW Sci-Fi Mag. Also, you can find Nick the Tooth on Instagram at Nick the Tooth and follow his wild escapades. Theme song was written by Christopher Whitaker and our podcast is produced by Andrew Alonzo. Thank you.